you mean stiletto heels? Whatever. They take up a lot of space, Imelda. So what's the difference between this year's closet and last year's closet? Well, um, we're going to have more student voice, regular guest editorials. What about the music and the insightful investigative reporting? Um, oh, the gossip. Yeah, that'll still be there. Oh, bake my rainbows. Great. Let's get started. Hand me a glue stick and the glitter. Welcome to Closets Are For Clothes. Okay, so it wasn't a countdown this time. <laughs> it was more of a point, <laughs> which is what we're used to. We're more of a like tap on the glass. You're on. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, wow, I should not have been talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Dan. Hi, how are you? What's shaking? Uh, not much. Goodness gracious. Yeah. It's been, um, yeah, I, you know what? I think I'm just determined never to do summer work. Uh, because it's never summer? Um, <laughs> right. Well, that's true. Yeah. But the little, the, the frost of things is, but I've been working in my yard a lot this year, uh-huh. feeling very earthy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. discovering my my inner um, earth mother and <laughs> um you know and doing all this wonderful my earth mother was prada <laughs> <laughs> and all these wonderful things and sure enough i decide to relax have people <gasps> over omg and i um what did you do i broke some toes I actually like uh, joined two uh, um, two two of the uh, bones together, um, and uh, they, they said fuse, but they were able to pull it apart. So I don't know what I thought fuse means. One, what? but um, oh. so. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so I have, and so I have all different kinds what? of colors that I didn't know a body could have. How did you do and, that? And um, it's been, uh, Where, uh, yeah. So you it's know, been, so this is what happens when you go against nature. The groundhog, <laughs> the groundhog <laughs> spirit <laughs> has descended upon your toe. Uh, exactly. He bit me where it, where it counts. Oh, exactly. So, yeah, so it's a very interesting. Um, this might be a dumb question, but it is, does it hurt? Oh, sorry. Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh. So I've got to like keep it elevated and keep my feet in the air, and you of know, of course you do. And you know, that's, that's a common thing for you. That's what they told me exactly. I was like, <laughs> oh, all right. You know, now at least I have a doctor's note. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry to yeah, hear that. So, so, so that's what you did the Memorial Day weekend. You garden? I did. I did. I took care of a lot of the household honeydew lists that I seem to be getting. Oh. And yeah, getting all the stuff done and making the place look presentable and have people over. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. So it was kind of a, um, you know, relaxing, fun, visiting with friends, lots of laughter. Nice. You know, drove the neighbors nuts because of all the laughter, having people over. <laughs> you know, it was great. Jovial. <laughs> Joviality. Yeah, there you go. Joviality. I, too, was a garden fairy this weekend. Wow. (laughs) It's true. So I've been helping my friend um, Robbie with uh, her backyard. And um, who knew that there were so many different colors of mulch? Oh, yes. We took several chips getting like, okay, is this red different than the other red? What's brick red and vibrant red? Like, can you vibrant brick red? So it was, it was, it was very, it was a lot of fun, though. Oh, I bet. And, um. We didn't see the groundhogs, but right? we saw some awesome um, 
We saw a baby raccoon. Aww. I know. And so the mother must have been near. So, of course, then my other friend, Jennifer, was like, um, I don't do raccoons. I'm out of here. <laughs> so, so she was out. Oh. So, how did you, where'd you find the baby raccoon? It was just walking around. Just, just, just hanging out, you know. Oh. It's like, yo, my raccoon has cigarette in its mouth. You know, <laughs> just chilling up in the space. Saw so you guys were having fun. Thought no, it was a good time. It was a good time. Yeah. yeah. And I felt. I, I too felt connected to Mother Nature. Yeah. Uh-huh. It was a perfect week for, weekend for that. It wasn't hot. I mean, Monday was hot, but that's when I was done. Right. Um, that's when I was in the air conditioning. So, nice. yeah. <laughs> so. And even it was just beautiful. Yeah. So, absolutely. Yeah. So, it just, and it was supposed to rain, but it never, I just, that's the thing is I planted some stuff knowing I have to like water it regularly and making sure, but I thought, oh, it's raining tonight, so I don't even have to do it and wake up to find out it never rained. Ugh. You know, it's just like, oh, so I have to get well, back and out there. Last night there was fr- with a Dutch. Uh, exactly. Dutch. That's different. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh, trying to get that taken care of. Yeah, so that was... Yeah, and so yeah, and so that's one of the things I've been feeling really lucky about is that I haven't planted any flowers yet. So... <laughs> I, I planted everything and everything's frozen. Yeah. <laughs> so they're like, oh, it's cold. So this weekend... So, um, oh, yo. so real quick, we're going to have to come back to it. We need to talk about Idol. Oh, really? Yeah. What happened? Well, no, Did we they haven't talked since last week. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, that's right. Oh, <laughs> oh now you get all funny. See, of course. like Absolutely. Of course. Absolutely. So let me tell you just real quick, my dear listener, mm-hmm. that um, Idol finale was last week, and uh, I have uh, apparently on air said that I thought that David <laughs> Cook was going to win, and David Archuleta, or, no, that David Archuleta was going to win, and David Cook was not, and the opposite happened, and, and of course, I, I, and of course, Right after the announcement's made, my phone rings. And who is it but our co-host Dan Burns saying, Oh my god! And so, you know, I'm texting David Archuleta and I'm like... David, if you need to come over, I will be here for you. Exactly. Well, I think this is some background that I think that our audience members don't really know, is that that Gabe picks out all our music for the show, because I have terrible taste in music. That's not true, just different. Okay, I have, okay, so that the, the, um, targeted audience may not enjoy the same music that I have, even though I think Barbara Streisand and Cher are great. Um, and, um, and, um, and why, and everybody can listen to all that pop music, but you know what? Soundtracks and, you know, <laughs> musical, musicals are fabulous. And, um, so I have a particular taste that, um, uh, in, in music. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so last... The way, like, some people have a taste in anchovies. <laughs> and, um, so it was very funny last week week we we happened to have the between the lines um entertainment editor entertainment editor chris and and um the expert in entertainment and predictions and um and gabe here both saying that it has to be archuleta and it's going to be archuleta and i at a whim said fine i'm going to be choosing cook (sighs) whatever and and uh, the the apparently i have been really in touch with the energy of music through my earth mother all right that's um, enough So, speaking of our own American Idol, so this weekend is Motor City Pride, and this show, I want to talk about two things that I love. Okay. Okay? Cute boys and carbs. Because later on, folks, we're going to talk to the owner of Avalon Bakery in Detroit, but first, with the the first one, um, I'm going to talk to, let's talk to Eric Hyman, and if you've been listening um, in the past couple weeks, we've been talking about Eric Hyman quite a bit. Yes. Um, Eric, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Eric, welcome to Closets Over Clothes. Ah, thanks for having me. 
Of course. So are you excited to come to Motor City? Uh, yes. They, uh, I was requested, and I said, sure. I haven't been there in a while, so I was very excited to be able to come back. Now, you're doing a tour right now, right? So you're in Chicago this week? Yes. I'm in Chicago right now. It's nice. Nice. It's nice. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, where is the tour of the Midwest? Is it, um, or what's considered Midwest? Because I don't know if Kentucky is considered Midwest, or... Uh, I was in Kentucky yesterday. Right, right. But is it just, are you picking particular cities as you're going through, or just wherever anybody's giving you an invitation? Uh, no, I picked a, a little bit of both. Okay. Half invitation, half, like, okay, if I'm going to be near D.C., I'm going to play Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Just things like that. Well, and, you know, speaking of being all over the place, like, you really have been all over the place. Your new CD is out now, right, Resonate. Um, you were nominated for the Brink of Fame Award for the New Now Next Award. Welcome to the what special great fire entrance. alarm, <laughs> the special fire alarm edition of Closets for Clothes. So you are listening to Closets for Clothes in WCU and FN Hour. So the reason why we started with a, a late, a, mm-hmm. an early show is because we were we were getting ready to go. We were meditating, you know, our pre-show <laughs> absolutely, meditation. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I had just aligned my chakras, and the alarm went off. Exactly. And so um, the fire alarm that is. So it was, you know, very peaceful. And so. <laughs> We had to evacuate, and I am, you know, nothing has been burnt down. Like, I, you know, I think, you know. Wouldn't it have been awful that we, would, like, had remodeled the entire, you know, um, the stu- the studio, know, exactly. and then have it just go up in and, flames. And, you know, Dan was saying, like, you know, <laughs> they go through great, great lengths to keep us off the air. <laughs> <laughs> so um so we're back i have to admit though live. there is the commercial that comes on the air that the station i listen to sometimes and there is um there is flame um heating and cooling uh-huh. and there at one point they were advertising for flame technicians mm-hmm. um to help mm-hmm. like build furnaces and i just thought it was hysterical i said oh i want to be a flame technician <laughs> pretty flaming You're pretty exactly flaming. i can help people with their you know um what is that techno uh 
They're flames. They're flames, exactly. <laughs> and how not to. So so we don't know if our personality set off the alarm or something else did. So so either way, you've landed at Closets for Clothes. And um, this past weekend was Pride. It was. It was a beautiful, beautiful weekend. I heard it was absolutely wonderful. <laughs> I mean, the weather was just perfect. And, you know, it wasn't so hot and steamy. And, and um, well, some of the people were. But, I mean, the, the weather of that well, wasn't. Many, no. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a good time. It was, I, was, uh, I felt grateful that the weather had lucked out so well because last year it was rainy. Oh, so yes. So you could tell, like, people had turned out. And it was a good time. Yes. You know, way to go, Ferndale. Way to go, um, Shane and, and, and her team. Mm-hmm. For a great Motor City Pride, absolutely. So, so that was so, great. Yeah, great, great way to kick it off uh, our um, Pride Month, if you will. Right, and, and you know it was also um, a big weekend for a lot of different things. You know, mm-hmm. first weekend um, in June was also the eve of the last primaries. You know, so that's right. That's right. Last night, from and I'm sorry. I heard the news this morning when I woke you up. No, I I appreciate the sentiments, but it's fine. Like oh, that was so. Oh, <laughs> the, oh, then your voice definitely gave it away there. No, I mean, you know, and for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, like I am an art. I personally, me, am an ardent, not ardent, but a pretty. I'm a Hillary person. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so, so maybe for another show. Okay, all right, for another show. But this weekend, also in Philadelphia, there is a big, big event happening. Um, a yearly conference, the Trans Health Conference. Oh, and, and oh, it's coming up. Okay, great. Oh, terrific. No, this past weekend. Oh, I was going to say, I thought you said it was past weekend. <laughs> I did. Uh, so this past weekend in Philadelphia was the Trans Health Conference, and this is um, uh, increasing in important and, and relevance to many, many people. Um, you know, just the other day I heard um, uh, a really extensive, um, interesting, engaging um, piece on two, um, two boys um, who oh, yeah. identified as trans, and one was being raised and one was being forced um yes. and we'll talk about about that later but i've asked our friend andre wilson to join us hello andre hi dan hi gabe <laughs> hello hello and 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 you you're sort of like our field reporter because you attended the trans health conference yes i attended on i attended uh, last year as well and, and I, where was it last year oh uh, well actually also in philadelphia um this was uh this is the seventh annual um, Philadelphia Trans Health Conference. Oh, I remember when it, when it used to be a very small conference. It was not very. How many people showed up this year? Now you're now you're quizzing me. Not when I wasn't one of the organizers. Um, oh, but when you looked it, around, but or of something. course they did say, and I was too busy networking <laughs> um, to actually pay attention to that part. There but it's were, not like a living room. We're talking about a no, huge no, we're, deal. We're talking the Philadelphia Convention Center oh, with, wow. with multiple simultaneous workshops and big uh, plenary sessions. There were some absolutely fantastic. Uh, Speakers, Eli Clare was one of the planners. One of our past mm-hmm. guests, mm-hmm. yeah, right. One of our and one of our former Ann Arbor residents. That's right. And uh, so it was. It was really exciting to be there. And nice. it's 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 um, is it always or has it traditionally been organized by um, the Mazzoni Center? Now, to be very honest, I'm not that familiar with the history of it. I 
I think that that it was not always organized by the Mazzoni Center. And what's interesting about about this conference is that it's actually part of a larger set of, of summits, of health summits. Hmm. Um, every other year, there's the LGBTI Health Summit that moves around to different locations. And on the off years, there's a trans summit, a, a lesbian summit, a gay male summit. Um, a bi summit actually has just happened, and I don't know if we have an intersex summit coming mm. coming up. But mm. there's uh, so that then we all come back together in the in you know the following year to talk about where where we are. So this this conference doubles up and functions as our our trans summit at the same time. I see. So. But this does happen every year. This one happens every year. That's right. So those of us who went to the LGBTI summit last year um, came back to almost immediately afterward to Philadelphia because that was also in Philadelphia. Oh. Mm. So we we had uh, double Philadelphia last year. <laughs> Interesting. So so trans health conference. So is it just a conference? Is it mainly about um, people in transition, or is it about? Um, so I'm trying to. Give me a sense of the scope of, of, of the things that we're talk- that wow. are talking about. Well, the scope is so, I mean, it ranges from the very, very broad sort of um, how to do a transgender 101 training, which is always, for example, um, for people who are interested in trans 101, sort of uh, kind of want more information. But there's workshops about... Uh, um, the work that people are doing around preventive health services mm-hmm. and sort of how they're transforming their clinics. There's workshops for partners of transgender people. There's workshops that talk um, specifically about surgical options. So there was an entire, uh, a really great workshop on um, phalloplasty and metoidoplasty, sort of demystifying oh. and talking about different procedures. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's there's really a lot uh, a lot of different uh, options there for both just for information but also for people who are activists or um, professionals trying to sort of step up the level of their work. And so why do you go? Why do I go? Um, well, in part I go because I present uh, on health insurance advocacy that mm-hmm. I do, um, and there's not there's not a lot of opportunity to network with people across across the country, but also even, I mean, the transgender population overall is, I think it's bigger than we we imagine, but it's not that large. So to really get a a lot of people together in a room, really have to go to these conferences. And um, none of us want to reinvent a wheel, so Mm -hmm. we're all trying to share information. So I gave a workshop, uh, this, this year actually was a new workshop for me, uh, called uh, Getting LGBT Together to Win, hmm. um, which looked at both the um, the work on eliminating exclusions, the transgender exclusions in insurance, and the work that we've done on alternatives to domestic partner benefits here in Michigan um, to look at sort of how uh, these issues can mesh together and we can think about these as LGBT issues, not simply as uh, separate issues. Absolutely. And what are some of those things that you actually talked about at the... So, um, anybody who, who knows me knows that I'm, I usually am fairly uh, complex and layered in, the, in my thinking, and my workshops usually look like that as well. And so what we tried to do, I actually co-presented with somebody also um, from Ann Arbor, um, 
lately of Ann Arbor, uh, Holly Burmeister, who was active in the the campaign here at the University of Michigan that uh, the contract campaign for the Graduate Employees Organization uh, back in 2004-2005, where we fought for both um, non-discrimination language in our contract for the graduate employees and to make that really mean something by eliminating one of the really big pieces of discrimination, which was the discrimination in the insurance coverage. But we also, back in 2004, anticipated that that um, proposal to the ballot amendment, um, similar unions for similar purpose, et cetera. That it was going to be used. That it would be used against mm-hmm. us. And so in GEO, we had developed, um, even before the November elections, because we have to, um, we have to prepare in advance, um, we, we had been developing alternatives. So we, we came up with um, the designated beneficiary option and, uh, and put that on the table. So uh, Holly was part of that. And so we pre- presented on, um, s- that is my phone. Somebody has to get rid of it. I thought I'd turn my phone off. Excuse me. So... You know, I so carefully did that in the car, but obviously I turned it on instead of <laughs> on. Um, well, so we, we talked about how not only um, what, the, what the things were that we had been fighting for, for the inclusive coverage, what does inclusive coverage look like, what might an alternative to partner benefits look like, mm-hmm. but also how we did it, how we brought together um, people uh, who were thinking about issues separately in a contract campaign where we fought not just for trans issues, not just for lesbian and gay issues, but actually fought for a host of minority issues across the table, and we won on every single one. So that sounds, you were saying it's layered, it sounds like there's lots of stuff going on there. So there's cross-movement identity, there's insurance, there's bargaining, there's organizing, there's all this stuff. And mostly what there is, I mean, to be very honest, I think it's inspiring people. And I think that that's one of the great things about a conference like this, is we get to hear um, what people are doing around the country and we get to hear about successes, about challenges, but we really, who we see are people who are, um, who are taking it on themselves to make change in the world. Most mm-hmm. of the people who are there at the conference and who are presenting at the conference are not, um, they're not necessarily professionals. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not paid handsomely. Most people are doing volunteer work um, when they're doing this work. And they're deeply, deeply committed. And many of the people who come to the conference are also, and are not presenting, are also um, very committed activists. So it's, a very, it's very inspiring. And that's what Holly and I certainly were trying to do in our workshop, was to let people know that, I mean, really, so it's, it's about grassroots organizing for insurance change is really what we're doing. And I can't think of any sort of bigger non sequitur than to think about insurance, which is a completely horrifying, you know, set of policy regulations sure, distant, yeah. and to try to do grassroots organizing around it. And yet, when we, we take it apart for people, uh-huh, and uh-huh. that's what everybody is doing in their workshops, I think, is trying to take it apart for people so things are accessible. So take this part apart for me so so let's talk uh, for a second the dsm has a gid diagnosis that's right gender identity disorder and what does that have to do with um how does that affect insurance you know it's interesting because that was a question that was actually asked in our workshop and so by gabe (laughs) it wasn't so i think he had like a listening ear Um, (laughs) but so um in many ways, it has to do. It 
that that diagnosis it's a diagnosis so uh-huh, it's not uh-huh. a treatment protocol it's it's a very specific um it's a diagnosis and it's a diagnostic um, category number that gets assigned if people seek medical treatment. And so how this si- interfaces with insurance is that insurance does not pay for things that are not medically necessary in some way. And so it doesn't pay for things for which there is not a diagnostic code and a procedure code. So we need some sort of code in order to bill. Now you can get services from doctors without um, without having a code, but you're not going to get Insurance coverage. Insurance coverage. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the interface. Now, we don't necessarily need GID as a code. In fact, many, many um, transgender transition-related services like um, cross-gender hormone replacement therapy can be billed, the lab tests, other things, can be billed under much more logical codes, actually, like... Um, like hormone therapy. Like hormone therapy, right. So there's, there's codes that this could be... I mean, to be very honest, you know, I the, the hormone therapy that I receive is the exact same as another guy who was in my union, the exact same dose for the exact same reason. We mm-hmm. got depressed, tired, and um, uh, and unhappy late in late in the day, you mm-hmm. know. And so we were actually we used to commiserate over over our our um, medication delivery systems. Uh. But it so it really is. It's very very similar. It's the, it's basically for the same reasons, um, the same kind of care. So you don't necessarily need a separate code, but really for um, the surgical interventions, which is what we're really fighting for right now in the insurance coverage, we don't really have an alternative right now for most of those in terms of the billing. So we are, we are when we're billing for surgeries, we're m- much of the time looking at a GID diagnosis. So that's, that's the way it impacts um, the insurance. But in terms of fighting for getting um, insurance companies or employers to provide the coverage, what we're really looking at is the standards of care by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Formerly Habigda. Formerly Habigda. Mm-hmm. Before we get into that, though, I, but one of the questions I have is, but does it also, a GID diagnosis also can hurt you because it's considered... Pathologizing an identity? That, or that it's considered a, like a mental illness then? I mean, right. in some cer- certain situations, that would be maybe an interpretation. And so that, right, so that I think is, that's sort of an overarching discussion that, that we have, but I mean, it's really important for us all to remember, there is stigma associated with right. the code, but it's not clear to me personally whether the stigma really comes out of that code or re- whether it actually precedes the code. I think there's stigma against transgender and transsexual people Period. Period. Absolutely. There's also stigma attached to a lot of mental health diagnoses. I mean, before uh, transition, I had um, I had lifelong depression. I thought it was lifelong mm-hmm. until the mm-hmm. third day on testosterone, and it disappeared. Huh. And and but so that's a mental health diagnosis, and I didn't reveal it to um, to my academic program. For example, I I talked at length with the um, disabilities office here, and they thought that it you know it would be you know, possibly harmful. So there, there are, there are, um, there is stigma attached to mental health codes, but there's plenty. ADHD is a mental health code. Um, erectile dysfunction is a mental health code that's in the exact same chapter that we're in. So, so there's a lot of, a lot of codes that aren't, we think about it as, as a, as a mental health disorder, but there are a lot of things that we don't stigmatize in the same way. So I actually think it's not connected. Interesting. Interesting. I hadn't really thought of it in that way in terms of, um, not saying that it's just another 
but it's another type of of mental that's right and i think the danger i you know i'm not convinced that it belongs in a mental health um I mean, I do think that there are good arguments for placing it much more into a medical a medical um, uh, paradigm. But on the other hand, what we're seeing with most of the um, diagnoses in the DSM is that, in fact, they have biological um, uh, components to them. Mm-hmm. So it's not that different in that in that sense from the other the other mental health diagnoses. I think what's really at, what we're at risk for when we talk about pathologizing and want to pull ourselves out of the DSM is not finding um, common cause and solidarity with many, many other diagnoses that are also stigmatized for no good reason whatsoever. I mean, I actually think there's no good reason for stigma. Right. Um, and um, But we, we separate ourselves instead of looking um, for allies. Gotcha. Interesting. Absolutely. So, um, I'm sorry, so I interrupted, you were talking about where, um, about, um, pathologizing, uh, uh, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So then there's some things, once you had the diagnosis, where do you go from here? Yes. Uh, once you have that diagnosis. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it isn't, I, I do personally think that, uh, that it's I, I personally think it's a badly written diagnosis. A- absolutely. I, I think it's badly written. I don't think it describes... There you are. I'm <laughs> fading in and out. I don't think it really <laughs> describes um, what many people are facing. It might describe what some small number of people are facing. Um, I, I think as I look at that entire chapter, it really um, is anomalous in how it, how it deals with... Um, with uh, the issues that are supposed to be dealt with in the DSM. So I, I don't, I think it definitely needs work. Once you have that diagnosis, uh, you might be able to get services under your insurance plan. Mm-hmm. We at University of Michigan are very, very um, fortunate. The hard work of a number of people has Absolutely. made that possible. But, um, but in many insurance plans, uh, not only can you not get services related to transition covered, but the fact of having that diagnosis in your medical record might well keep you from getting many other services covered as well. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we're fighting for when we fight for the, for the removal of those exclusions from the insurance is not simply for transgender transition-related services like surgeries, but also for access to all kinds of other care and really for the elimination of discrimination. Mm-hmm. And, and like what, what's, what do you mean by other care? So and and it's it's hard to to pinpoint specifically, but um, for example, uh, I know a trans woman who's in who's in middle age. Now I hate to say this since I'm about her age, <laughs> um, but uh, she's in her fifties and she went back to school, had a um, a student plan at one of the big universities out on the west coast, and. She broke her wrist in a bicycle accident, and she thought she was covered for her emergency room services. But they, um, a month or two later, they sent her the bill back, and they had bounced the charges back to her, saying that her broken wrist was transsexual-related. Now, she had transitioned completely, her, all of her identity documents, everything. Um, you know, she'd been on hormonal transition for years. I, you know, I don't... I don't know every shred of personal data, but I believe she had gone through uh, multiple surgeries, et cetera. So she really, uh, they, they just decided that everything about her was trans-related, and she told me that the only thing that they would cover was her teeth. 
That, wow. And what they wanted, so of course she filed an appeal, and what they wanted from her was every single medical record and the names of every doctor she'd ever been treated by for her entire life. Now, who can remember this when you're, you know, over 40? Believe me, I can't remember anything. <laughs> but, um, but in addition, it's really hard to know um, what kind of door you're opening when you do that. So mm-hmm, she, mm-hmm. Um, she really... Uh, just was unable to get any kind of services. Now, that's really scary. Absolutely. You know, but, and that's not even gender-related. I also know, for example, trans men who have transitioned hormonally, who have not had um, hysterectomies, but who function entirely as men in their lives at work, all of their identity documents changed again, and who have had um, issues with getting pelvic exams, pap smears, that kind of thing covered, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because that's defined as well woman care. Yep. Um, and we fight these, we fight these, uh, these uh, denials when they happen. And, and one of the things, and I guess my mic is not working, but. Um because I think what you're fighting for is not also just for trans people um, because me being uh, a born ma- uh, with male genitalia um, identifying as, a, as gen- gender male um, because of my size I have d- developed breasts not due to hormones not due to anything and I had to go because of some issues of lumps or whatever had to get a breast exam and I was refused because a man does not go and get or a male I should say does not go and get so you're fighting even for for people who aren't trans or identify as trans and I think that that's one of the things that um, it's not just you know the, the trans community you're actually working for, but also just good health care. Period. That's right. We're 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 working for good health care for everybody. And you're absolutely right that when men get um, get breast cancer, mm-hmm. um, it can be a real battle to fight for coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that's a battle that that is generally successful. But for example, there are also reconstructive services. A really good health insurance policy will cover a variety of reconstructive services, but some other policies don't. Do so well. So, um, if you were to lose body parts, mm-hmm. and they they might decide that they weren't all that that functional, even though you were born with them. Um, typically, reconstructive services. So, for example, if a man is to lose his genitals, um, either a hunting accident or whatever, right? Um, you might you might, with a good insurance policy, be able to get that. Um, replaced, so to speak. You mm-hmm. might be able to get reconstructive services. Um, but some insurance policies actually are pretty are pretty um, crappy in that regard. Amazing. And so I think, I think what we're really fighting for is the idea, and I, you know, an amazing group of people a number of years ago fought for breast reconstruction after mastectomy for women. Mm on this very basis. Now, no, no woman has to have reconstruction after she has a, a mastectomy, but it's really strongly um, encouraged, and in fact, it's federally mandated that if, if an insurance company covers mastectomy, they have to cover reconstruction. Wow. Good. And the reason for this is exactly why transgender people, transsexual people, many of us need these surgeries, because it's part of a self-concept, a self-identity as a man or a woman and it's not only that, it's part of a self-concept of the, the internal knowledge of our bodies, who we are, what we are. Mm-hmm. And um, so some women 
after mastectomy, after they have cancer and have mastectomy, some choose not to have reconstruction. It's not as important for their self-identity for some reason. Now, for other women, it's really, really deeply important. And, and the, the downside, if women choose not to have the surgery, is some people really fall into quite a deep depression. Right. This is exactly parallel to what we see. And, and I think that's what we're fighting for, is choice. That's right. Well, I'm just going to speak up loud. So, but it's, it's choice. Um, it, it's, it's, it's my body and this is what I need for my psychological well-being or just my physical well-being. It's choice. You know, I I don't use that word so much because I think really what it's about is need. And when people need things, it, you know... It's not really a choice. You know, for example, I, yes. I knew who I was when I was three and four years old. I knew I was a boy. I had been born female. That's what everybody told me. I knew why they had told me that. I, it seemed pretty clear to me that I had a female body, but I also knew I was male. I didn't transition until age 43. Mm-hmm. And I thought that for, for decades, I thought that I had a choice. But what I know now, that third day of testosterone when I was suddenly for the first time in my life free from depression, it became clear to me that I had not made a choice. It's not a choice if you're not informed about what the consequences are. And it's not a choice mm-hmm. to live a life without a self. And so when I think back, people you know, sort of ask me, am I happy? You know, happiness really doesn't have anything to do with it. I am happier than I was. In fact, I'm quite happy. But, but really what I am is a person with a self. And when I look back, that was not true mm-hmm. up until the age of 43. And so when we talk about choice, if we know, once we know that we're living without a self, it isn't a choice to live without that anymore. And that's where, that's where we are. Mm-hmm. So that I don't I don't really Thank use you. that word choice. Thanks. That's a good one, yeah. You know, I think that um what this reminds me of, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about um about what's coming up, what what things surprised you at the Trans Health Conference. And the thing that he mentioned was seeing lots of families and children. Wow, yes. You know, I wasn't super surprised this year, but let me tell, I'll tell you a story. I was really shocked when I went last year. I was staying with um, a friend in his hotel room. Um, he um, was one of the speakers, so he got put up for free, so I crashed in his room. And we were to meet downstairs for breakfast in the morning, and he was late. And so he was late. I want you to know that, Gabe. I'm the one who's usually <laughs> late. He was late. So I was down there early, and I was selecting a table. And, you know, it was in the, you know, it has like this kind of brunch thing in the hotel. And so there were all these families down there with really little kids and you know, moms and, you know, just kind of running around. And I thought, wow, we're going to have this, like, kind of trans conversation, this kind of strategy conversation at breakfast. I don't want to be too, too much um, uh, while we're talking about that. So I kind of selected this table off in the corner so that we could be, like, not offending middle America. And then I went up to get my food, and I suddenly realized that these were the parents and the little kids who were attending the conference as part of the family track. Wow. Oh, wow. And, and there's I, a family track. There's a whole there was, family there was, track. Yes. yes, there was an entire family track. And I, I mean, I was so moved. I actually, I was busy getting my coffee, and I just stood there, and I burst into tears, actually. And I went back and sat down, and I started talking um, to the moms who were next to me. And I, you know, I told them, you know, how moved I was that they were there. They were there. They were fighting fiercely. fiercely. And I guess... I think I was crying in part because these were kids who were the age I was when I knew about myself and mm-hmm. couldn't tell anybody. And I was moved because these kids had told, they had spoken out loud who they were. And not only that, 
but their parents had listened. Right. And that, it just blew me away that we were in such a different place, a different, a different world that kids could speak and be heard. Um, and that really changed the conference for me last year. And uh, listening to the parents, so we talk about insurance exclusions. Mm-hmm. One mom told me that she's got three kids, and they, you know, they have health insurance through um, her husband's job, and she's a stay-at-home mom, but one of her kids cannot get health services because everything about her is transsexual. Huh. So these It's trans- like that broken wrist thing, right? It is like the broken mm-hmm. wrist thing. And if you can imagine being a parent and you've got a kid who's going to suffer, you know, go through all the childhood illnesses, all the all the childhood everything. Plus. Plus and and suddenly you cannot get them insurance coverage for love or money and you you thought you had it. Um so we tend to think in the... But to, who does that fall on? Does it fall on the, the, the family or the provider, or does it p- p- fall on the employer? Well, we're not it, covering... It, so it's interesting. Um, we're working with employers. You know, not mm-hmm. every... There's no, there's no um, federal laws protecting gender identity, um, mm-hmm. non-discrimination in the workplace. There are some states that have passed laws. But we're still at a place where um, we're working to um, shed light on this kind of discrimination, the discrimination in health insurance. So a lot of employers haven't sort of woken up to that yet, um, and they need to. Mm-hmm. So who it, who it f- should fall on is the employer who commits not to discriminate on the basis of gender identity and expression. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and that's what we're, we're really working towards. But what really happens here is that it falls on the parents. I mean, literally, um, they're struggling to get health services for their for their kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I, that reminds me. I want to play this quick clip from NPR. Um, it, it played a couple weeks ago, and it's about two um, two children who um, are trans, and they follow these two children. They t- their parents decide to take two different directions in therapy. So let's listen to this first clip. Our humble family assessment room where over the years we've met with hundreds of families. Dr. Zucker has been treating kids with gender identity problems for close to 30 years. And for all of that time, his goal whenever he encounters a child under the age of 10 has been the same. He tries to make the children comfortable with the gender they were born with. Now, there's a lot of debate about Zucker's approach. There's a group of mental health professionals who argue that trying to force children with these issues to accept the sex they were born with is akin to trying to force homosexuals to be straight, that it's unethical. But that's not how Zucker sees it. He offers this way of thinking about it. Suppose you were a clinician and a four-year-old black kid came into your office and said he wanted to be white. Would you go with that? I don't think we would. If a black kid walked into a therapist's office saying that he was really white, the goal of pretty much any therapist out there would be to try to make him feel more comfortable with being black. They would assume that his beliefs were the product of a dysfunctional environment, a family environment or a cultural environment, which is how Zucker sees gender-disordered kids. So that's very interesting. So first we have this this uh, family who brings um, their child Bradley to Dr. Zucker. And so... I'm listening to how Dr. Zucker approaches his quote-unquote treatment, and I'm my heart is breaking. So, so uh, talking about um, 
Bradley wanting to play with um, girls' toys and and the parents just stripping Bradley of all of those things, including the color pink, not allowing Bradley to to color with the color pink, and that is so extreme. Yeah, it's really, it's really. I mean, it's not being able to color with the color pink or losing your toys seems maybe to adults like not a very big deal, but it's the world for kids. I mm-hmm. mean, those that's that's the the content of a child's world. Um, and it, it's very, very punitive. I mean, it makes just this, the color pink. You know, my, my own nephew, when he was a little kid, and uh, as far as anybody knows, I've, he's, not, he's not trans in any way, um, but he loved pink. I mean, he mm-hmm. loved colors. He loved, he loved all sorts of colors. And, you know, and he wanted colorful things. So to strip it away from a child, I mean, it's so gender normative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also... It's also not listening to what that child is telling us. So, so Zucker's so Zucker's approach then. So, why do you think so many parents? You know, he has he apparently says he has uh, a waiting list of eighty people. You know, it's interesting because I'm sure he does have a waiting list of people. But on the other hand, um, there's also. Uh, a waiting list uh, at the other clinics um, where you can go instead of going to his clinic, and there are many people who are not going to his clinic on purpose. I think, I think parents well, might go there if they if they're not comfortable with um, the gender nonconforming child that they that they have. So well, it's, it's, it's just well, it's just like why we have Exodus. I mean that we we have people who still go to Exodus. We still have people going there. They don't want to be gay anymore. Exodus being the ex-gay. Yeah. Right. So let's listen to to a clip from the other clinic. So the other family is Jonah, and and their doctor is Diane Aronsaft. So let's see here what they have to say. Reality. You see, thirty five years ago, homosexuality was considered a mental illness, a pathology so severe that it required aggressive therapeutic intervention. One common treatment was to try to condition homosexuals out of their sexual preference by attaching them to electrical shock machines and shocking them every time they were aroused by homosexual pornography. Today, the American Psychiatric Association's position is that therapies which try to turn homosexuals into heterosexuals are unethical. Homosexuality is now seen as a normal variant of human behavior. Which is how Erin Saff sees these kids. She doesn't use the label gender identity disorder. She calls this transgenderism. And for her, the lessons of the early therapeutic approaches to homosexuality are clear. If we allow people to unfold and give them the freedom to be who they really are, we engender health. And if we try and constrict it or bend the twig, we engender poor mental health. This is why Aaron Saff didn't encourage Pam and Joel to place Jonah in therapy. Pam says that because Aaron Saff didn't see transgenderism itself as a dysfunction, any more than she sees homosexuality as a dysfunction, she didn't think it should be treated. She made it really clear that, you know, if Jen, if Jonah's not depressed or anxious or having anything go on that she would need to really be in therapy for, that, then don't put a kid in therapy until they need it. This is also why Dr. Aaron Saft did encourage Joel and Pam to allow Jonah to live as a little girl. Now, she doesn't always do that. If she thinks that a child is less certain about their gender identity or has mixed feelings, she'll ask parents to be cautious and not permit the child to live as the opposite sex. So this story is almost in direct contrast, it is, in direct contrast to how the other family approaches their son's um, 
their son's personality and life like so they talk about jonah going to school um as a little girl dressing um, and buying their first dress and how excited that jonah was and it just seems so much better for everyone involved it is the contrast between the the descriptions of the two children was really stunning in this story but um, i just want to say that the the parents of of, um, of jonah certainly uh, almost certainly think of Jonah as their daughter now. And this was what was very striking to me about the parents that I met um, at Trans Health Conference is that um, really they, they do accept their child's expressed identity. And, um, and so uh, they refer to their children by the, by the gender um, that they, that they express. Mm-hmm. And that's really, it's really a, a, quite a shift. And really they told just amazingly moving stories about, you know, I mean, we're talking about people who, who are, are, are from, um, you know, small town Indiana, Iowa, you know, all over the country. But we're not talking about people who are, who are from, you know, Ann Arbor or the places we think of where, you know, somehow mm-hmm. people have been, you know, mediatized or seen things or whatever. People who really, really took some time uh, as parents to, um, to come to terms with this. But once they saw the difference... Um, between um, their their child who was being forced to wear um, boys' clothes, and when um, their child got to wear the barrettes and the dress or whatever you know she wanted to wear, um, it was really such night and day. And mm-hmm, that's what mm-hmm. I think parents are seeing is the difference. Parent parents can tell whether or not a kid is is um, is suffering depressed and and you know inside themselves and whether they're really alive well and you know the thing that really struck me with uh, the other parents bradley's parents who go to dr zucker is you know they say that their biggest the thing that really struck them and why they decided to continue to see dr zucker was because dr zucker had said at some point bradley will be if you allow bradley to develop in this way bradley will be rejected by both sexes that the that the men will say that men will say you're not masculine enough and that women will say you're not a true girl and and, and that's, that's ridiculous i mean i mean it's ridiculous in, in the sense that um well first of all n- the, our culture doesn't accept things that our culture isn't asked to accept and mm. so by by with with in, in with that approach Zucker isn't actually asking our culture to do more and that's part of the right. role that he should have right. as a competent provider is to ensure that the work that he's doing is the work of, of advocacy for the people who are coming to see him mm-hmm. and my my uh, profession is social work and we this is part of our social work code of ethics is that we actually have to do work to change the lives the, the policy uh, context in which our clients are living mm-hmm. But but really, um, what's striking to me, when, going back to the first thing that Zucker is talking about, it's really striking that when he talks about if if uh, uh, a black person came into your office and wanted to change the color of their skin, when he uses that example, it suggests he doesn't even believe in the gender identity diagnosis. Mm-hmm. The difference there is there is no diagnosis really for that, and there's no proven treatment protocol. But we do actually have a treatment protocol for which is highly successful. The outcomes are well demonstrated over decades of practice um, for people who have this other issue. And so when he says that, it really calls into question whether he really believes in the existence of the protocol that he himself defends hmm. um, to, some, to some degree. So, so I think that's very striking in this, in this story. 
Well, can I back up to because don't. Well, maybe this is for another time, but I think that that. Well, I mean, because I I find that like for myself being gay, I'm not really. Well, I, let me back up. Let me back up even further. Another example is, for instance, like for those who um um who feel attracted to both sexes, the stories that we hear a lot is that they can't function. Uh, in the straight community, because they're being re- they're, they're rejected because they they um, they like the same sex, but they don't. But they're also being rejected by the gay community because they like someone of the opposite sex, and so therefore they're really not fitting in either either world. Um, and one of the things that I find sometimes with folks that they feel that once they've had the surgery, that then they can now just. Um, um, become blind and blinded into the community and never have to really deal with this issue, but yet it actually created more problems for them because they still weren't weren't where they thought they would be. Um, that they would be, they thought they would then now have solved it. Isn't there still a rejection that occurs? Well, I think I think it's complicated. I think that they're sure there's stigma. I think one of the functions of marginalization is to make it difficult for people to fit in, mm-hmm. and so people are marginalized. Um, gay people are mar- marginalized. Bisexual people are marginalized. Transgender people are marginalized, and so um, it is hard to fit in. It's hard to fit um, our pasts into our present sometimes. So I lived 43 years of my life as a female person, and. Uh, a quarter of a century as a lesbian activist, how to bring that with me as a male person. Nobody asked me for a tampon anymore. I used mm-hmm. to, you know, really, so that's part of my identity as somebody who, you know, gave other women tampons in the bathroom. That's, it doesn't, it doesn't function that way anymore. Nobody expects me to have that. They don't ask for it. Mm-hmm. But, so there are little pieces like that that are, I mean, it, it's funny, but, but there are pieces of our identity that we have to kind of shed and that, that may, maybe sadness or, or, or even a kind of discomfort comfort or disjuncture socially but and i think that people um transsexual people transgender people can sometimes place too great of an expectation on the difference sort of a before and after or Mm. even this concept of the surgery for many people there's not one single surgery and for some people there's no surgery absolutely and uh you know and especially for female to male transsexuals the um, testosterone is enormously powerful in its ability to transform skin texture um, there's nothing like a little male pattern balding to, um, <laughs> to convince people that you're male. Um, you know, so it's very, very powerful. And, and so in that social context, um, it can be fairly, fairly easy to move about. But what, what I want to underscore here, though, is that really um, people may expect the social context to, to change because of surgeries. But to my mind, the surgeries are important I mean, when we think about the social context changing because of surgeries, it may. But um, but when we think about it that way, what we're really talking about is a kind of cosmetic effect, what mm-hmm. other people see, what other people Absolutely. think. And I think what's really important to remember about all of the interventions, whether they're surgical or other kinds of medical interventions for transgender people, what we're really doing here is a very primary effect uh, on the self, on self-concept, on the experience of the self, um, people who who need medical services very often, and it's really I want to. It's late in the show to be doing this, but I want to say that right. a lot of it, a lot of this is, may sound like generalizations. There are very many different kinds of experiences, Experience, but, sure. but yes. for for many people, um, 
this this is something that feels much more like uh, something that comes out of a body, and it isn't about something that's in in the mind. And so, connecting the body to itself, I think, is is how I've heard a number of people describe um, the surgical interventions. Mm-hmm. And and we're st- even when our bodies are connected, we're still faced with the same social situation. Mm-hmm. We still have a family that may not be accepting. I think what we gain, though if we have access to the services that we, whatever services we need as an mm-hmm. individual, when you have access to those, we gain access to something that someone who's fully functioning um, to a greater capacity. We're able to deal with the situation that life throws at us in a much, much greater way. Yes, absolutely. Um, can I put in a little pitch here for absolutely. a couple of organizations? I want to say some of the, there's an amazing organization um, that uh, that is parents uh, fighting for um, their kids, for transgender kids, Trans Youth Family Allies. Um, and you can, you know, look for them on the web. Uh, they, there were a number of parents there. They're doing an incredible job. Um, you know, Transgender Michigan has a, um, a listserv that has been helping people across the state. Uh, there's also great organizations. Affirmations has has uh, programs, and we even have a support group here in in town in Ann Arbor that's been running for quite a long time now. So, um, and what's the name of that group? That's called Gender Explorers, and okay. um, the um, the new Spectrum office. I was going to call it the LGBT <laughs> office. The new Spectrum office at the University of Michigan can can provide details for for time and place for that. Fantastic. And I think that that's one of the things I think you're you're right with the, the trans um, the trans youth family allies family allies. I think that that is like you said before. It is heartwarming to know that we're not doing such um, um, harm harm such harmful things to to youth anymore as much as we used to. Of just it's not such a crisis as as it. Um, I I wouldn't want to give the impression. I mean. I have to say that that kids are in crisis, and it really oh. varies. Um, Thank you. Yes. So, yes. so it. Um, but what we're seeing is that, and what why I think Typha and some of the other organizations are so amazing, is that there's a fierce fighting back, fighting for these parents are fighting for the lives of their children, and they're doing it in. Uh, just amazing ways, right? And um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the the trauma that there are some folks that aren't going through so much. Uh, sorry, that there are folks that are trying to make sure that there are um, the trauma isn't occurring. Well, I think what's different about it, what we know, for example, about trauma is that um, what really makes a difference is social support. Absolutely. And so, even if you're facing difficult circumstances, having social support, and particularly having the support of your families, mm-hmm. um, your your birth family, your chosen. Family, having the support of the people closest to you makes all of the difference. Mm-hmm. And that's what these kids are growing up into a world um, where they're able to find that. Yes. Andre, thank you. You are always such a worth, a worth, full of information and knowledge for us and, and such a great resource in our community. We're lucky to have you, you here in Ann Arbor and let alone Michigan. Um, so thank you once again. I really thank appreciate you it. For, thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to Closets Ever Close. Um, I can't guarantee we won't have another fire alarm next, next week but um, uh, um, keep the flame going it's pride month talk to you later bye